Well, I do encourage you to take your Bibles and turn them to the book of First Thessalonians. Hopefully you grabbed a message outline and a bulletin when you came in the door, and you can take those notes out and follow along. As I'm continuing, this is part number 10 in our series through this early, likely the first epistle, either this one or Galatians, written at, by the pen of the Apostle Paul to this northern Greece town or city of Thessalonica. Again, this is part 10 in this series I've entitled Living with Hope. And today I'm preaching a message called Live Distinct. Live Distinct. You know, there's a whole genre of films that have been produced over the years of movie making that fall within this category known as body swap films. Now, the first one I can remember in my childhood was one starring the 1960s comedic genius Don Knotts. You probably know him as Barney Fife of the uh, Andy Griffith Show. And he had this show, this movie called The Incredible Mr. Limpet. Anybody remember watching this movie? Sure. And so what happens? Don Knotts is transformed into this fish and eventually becomes a spy for the United States looking at, you know, during World War II. It's kind of bizarre. But this, you know, body swap film really is a large genre in films. As I began to research it this week, uh, back in 1959, Disney put forward the movie The Shaggy Dog, and then in 1976, they had another really popular one called Freaky Friday, where the mom and the daughter swapped bodies. It was remade in 2003, uh, but this is not the end of it. You, you continue to go through. You see all kinds of films. I Here's just a few. All of Me, starring Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin. Big, starring Tom Hanks. Jumanji with Jack Black and Kevin Hart. I've not seen this next one. The Hot Chick with Rob Schneider. Okay. And finally, The Cobbler with Adam Sandler. These are all in that genre of body swap movies. But they're in a larger category of movies, and that is because of the preposterous plot line of each of these films. They're all comedies. I mean, when you think about Rob Schneider, Adam Sandler, Jack Black, Kevin Hart, Don Knotts, it's obvious these are comedic films. And as such, they've generated billions of dollars from these completely impossible and preposterous scenarios. But friends, the comedy has turned into a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Because even though these scenarios are outlandish, unthinkable, impossible, in 2021 today, it is altogether normal to hear someone say, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. Or to hear the other, I I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Just 10 years ago, in any context, if that kind of a statement would have been made, it would have been followed with laughter. And then if you discover, no, the person is serious, you would have taken them to the closest psychiatrist so their mental disorder could be properly diagnosed. In fact, even in 2015, just six years ago, my socks are older than six years old. Six years ago, the American Psychiatric Association published their 950-page manual of mental disorders. And six years ago, gender dysphoria was still listed as a mental illness. But again, the comedy has become a tragedy. Because today, if you were to question the sanity or the legitimacy of someone making such a claim, you are now classified as a bigoted, hate-filled, transphobic Neanderthal who just needs to get with the times. Now, how did we get here? 
How did we arrive at such a bizarre, impossible cultural moment we find ourselves in today? Well, a new book that came out at the end of 2020, which the Gospel Coalition actually uh, said is the number one book for last year in cultural engagement, seeks to answer that question. I highly commend it. It's by Carl Truman. He's a confessional reformed professor, theologian, who wrote a book entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And just to give you a little insight into this book, uh, it was interesting. On Monday, as I'm preparing this sermon, I saw that Ben Shapiro tweeted out, this is the most important book of our moment. Now, this is significant because Ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew who's commending a book written by a Reformed Christian professor, published by Crossway. How did we get here? Well, Truman traces our cur current cultural moment, not only back to the 60s sexual revolution, which seems obvious, but even further back than that. He says, really, Whenever the seeds were planted in Western thought and belief, the primacy of the self. So whenever atheistic thinkers and scientists and philosophers like Charles Darwin, Sigmund Freud, and uh, Friedrich Nietzsche began, and others began to put forward these concepts, in a nutshell, what they proposed is that the most important reality of the human experience is what you feel inside. The most important reality is the self and the discovery of the self. And the only way you can find fulfillment, the only way you can be satisfied as a human in the human experience is to look within. And this is why we have people say, my truth is my truth, right? This is a response to these seeds that were planted. And so the freakish fruit we see coming to fruition today is really from those seeds that were planted 140 years ago. So the question is, for us as Christians, how do we respond? This is the cultural moment we're in, right? How do we now live? How do we have lives of maximum impact? How can we be a church that faithfully communicates the gospel when we live in a generation that has gone completely off the rails of God's beautiful design? Now, though this seems like a very new phenomenon we're experiencing, we are not the first generations to deal with such things. You, you may think that the sexual deviance that has arisen in America is novel, it's new in the history of the human race. It is not. These things have been happening since the beginning, since the fall of man. And that's happening even in the city of Thessalonica. I would remind you, those of you who have been with us in our study through this epistle, Paul is writing this letter from the southern Greece city of Corinth to the northern Greece church city of Thessalonica. Now, Corinth is well known for its sexual immorality and its perversion. For one, the honor of marriage that we have in our society, at least we used to, was virtually non-existent in the Corinthian culture. Marriage really, in their mind, particularly for men, existed for two reasons. One, to have offspring, progeny, Two, so that a wife could take care of the home and keep the house. It was fully expected and anticipated that men experience their sexual fulfillment and pleasure through either concubines, sex slaves, or prostitutes. Further, the city of Corinth is uh, known to have had a thousand priestesses from the temple of Aphrodite who would come down off the temple mount every day, and they were prostitutes. 
And those who worship this false goddess believe that if they had sexual intercourse with these prostitute priestesses, that's how they could touch, that's how they could connect with their God. In the first century Greek world, there were really no limits on people's sexual expression and involvement. Not only were there was there no expectation of a monogamous married type relationship, but every form of perversion and immorality was practiced openly. This included things like homosexuality, orgies of all sorts, and disgustingly very popular pedophilia, bestiality, transvestism, where men dressed like women engaged in indecent acts with each other. And in fact, the Greeks proliferated sexual immorality so much and so well, to use that term, they actually had to create new words to describe all the new perversions they developed. It's kind of like our culture, where the acronym LGBTQ keeps getting letters. Now there's just a plus at the end to include whatever else other deviance is included that people invent. This is the sexually perverse climate from which the Christians in Thessalonica were redeemed and in which this church existed to be a faithful lighthouse for the gospel. So I think we can see just how applicable the instructions the Apostle Paul gives to them in the first century are to us who reside here in America in the 21st century. Our focal text is going to be really 3 through 8, but I want to start reading at verse 1, even though we covered verse 1 and 2 in detail last week. They really are, as I told you last week, the setup for the next 46 verses in the book of 1 Thessalonians. This is God's inspired, inerrant word May he write his eternal truths on our hearts. Finally, or ultimately, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Again, what continues through the rest of this letter really fleshes out what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4. We told you how you ought to walk and please God. And here the first area of instruction he gives on how we ought to walk, how we ought to please God, is in this realm of sexual purity. Now, why is Paul giving this instruction? Is it because he's, he's a prude and he's repressed sexually, like Sigmund Freud might say? No. It's because he loves the Word of God. And as a pastor, he loves the people of God. He wants them to flourish. Friends, God's principles are the only means for human flourishing in the world. And that's why he gives them to this church and why we have them today. But I think even of greater importance are two other things. One, he knows that our message we proclaim will only be commended to the world if we have lives which comport with that message. And secondly, all we do is to be done for the glory of God because God is all about 
his glory. As he gives this instruction, he's really speaking to them about three important aspects with regard to a Christian's sexual purity and how we are called to live distinct from the world. I want to show them to you this morning. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to consider the mandate for sexual purity. The mandate for sexual purity. Again, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I can remember particularly in youth ministry, and even as a pastor, I would have often students come to me and say, Troy, I, I really need you to pray with me. I just need to know God's will for my life. You ever prayed a prayer like that? Lord, what's your will for my life? I'm telling you God's will for your life, that you are sanctified. It's clearly what he says here. God's will for your life, your sanctification. What, what is sanctification? Well, the Greek word there is hagiosmos. That you don't need to know that. There's not a test later. But the root word hagios simply means holy. Holy. Uh, we use that term holy quite a bit in the church world. We are preaching from the Holy Bible. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We sing a hymn, holy, 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 right? Well, what does holy mean? Holy means distinct. That's the title of my sermon, live distinct. Holy means, <clears throat> excuse me, different. Uh, it means separated, to be set apart. We say this is the Holy Bible, the Holy Biblios. That's just simply a book. Because there's not another book like it. We say the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, though there are angelic spirits, human spirit, demonic spirit. He is completely in the other category. He is the Holy Spirit. We sing, Holy, 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 there is none beside thee. He's transcendent. He's in the other category. He is the Holy, thrice Holy God. And Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, and he says to the church in Lookout Valley, be holy, be set apart, be different, live distinct. But here, Paul says the will of God for the Christian is this distinctness, particularly in the realm of our sexual lives. He uses this term sanctification or hagiosmos three times in this short passage here in verse 2, or verse 3, again in verse 4, and verse 7. It's the driving force. But how do we make this application to our sexuality? He says, again, abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain means keep away. Don't go near it. The word here for sexual immorality, one we've considered before here in church, is the Greek word porne, from which we get our English word pornography. But the word in Greek, its usage is much larger than just dirty magazines. It's basically the junk drawer that takes all the other sexual deviance into this one word. Any form of sexual immorality that is outside God's design for human sexuality. Well, this presents to us a question. What is God's design for human sexuality? I'm glad you asked, class. Here is the biblical, I distilled this down into one simple sentence, the biblical portrayal of God's design for human sexuality. Look at the next screen. God's perfect and unchanging design for human sexuality is one biological man and one biological woman in a monogamous marriage relationship for one time. Anything outside this is porno. Anything out this clear biblical teaching is sexual immorality. But here's the thing. Porno includes not just our actions, it also includes our thought life, our desires, and our passions. There are multiple occasions where Paul uses this term and he connects it to our desires, our thinking, our passions, 
Let me give you a couple of examples. Ephesians 5, 3, he says, But porne, sexual immorality, and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So within this context, impurity is your thought life. Covetousness is your lusting, your desires. In Colossians 3, he puts it this way, Put to death, therefore, what is worth earthly in you. Porne, sexual immorality, and here's the connecting thought patterns, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Of course, the Lord Jesus made this perfectly clear, didn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount, as he's giving instruction about marriage and adultery and the law, he said this in Matthew 5, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Friends, that's Jesus. Porne, sexual immorality, includes not just our actions, but our thoughts and our passions. Thought, word, and deed. And the overarching mandate the Apostle Paul gives for the church, abstain from all forms of sexual immorality. Why? Because we are called to be sanctified, called to be holy. We are called to live distinct. That's the first thing to notice, the mandate for sexual purity. Here's the second thing I want us to consider from the passage, the means for sexual purity. You see, in our day and age, we are incessantly exposed to all kinds of sights and sounds, thoughts, philosophies, political platforms, even elementary education curriculum is divergent from God's clear design. So how are we to live in a way that is contrary to all the sights and sounds we see? The need was equally great for the Thessalonians. And there's three timeless principles for maintaining uh, sexual purity, the means for sexual purity that Paul gives them. I want us to consider. The first one is this. He talks about the discipline of our bodies. We should learn how to discipline our own bodies. He says this in verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness, there's our word, hagiosmos, and honor. I want you to circle that phrase, control his own body. The word there, body, sometimes translated vessel in other translations, refers to the physical body, the vessel that we inhabit. Here's the thing. You are a soul. You are a living soul. You live in a body. This body will die one day. Your soul will never die. This body's going to be buried in the grave. Your soul will live forever. You are a living soul who inhabits a body, but yet you're redeemed, and your bodies have been redeemed by the Lord. So how do we control our bodies? How do we discipline our bodies? Well, he says, I want you to know how. It's a know-how, oida. It's a knowledge. It's a discipline. It's a learned skill through which we can accomplish this overarching mandate. It's a lifetime pursuit. Why? Because we always have human impulses. We always have fleshly desires. I mean, just as in our day, the, the people in Paul's day were largely motivated by this, this appetite, this feeling, the mantra, if it feels good, do it. That would have been equally applicable to their day and time as well, which is precisely why Paul gives this strong instruction here and also in a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians. Again, he's writing from Corinth, seeing everything happening around him, and he will later write to this church in Corinth, really expanding on the instruction he's giving here to the Thessalonians. In fact, I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 6 multiple times during this message. Here's the first time. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. 
Paul says food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now you notice that phrase, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food is in quotation marks. Paul is quoting to the Corinthians a Corinthian motto, a Corinthian idiom. What was the meaning of the idiom? You got appetites? The body was made for appetites? Fulfill the appetites. Just do whatever the body tells you to do. Your stomach is hungry? You eat. You want sex? Have sex with whoever, whenever, however. This was a familiar saying in their day. Your appetites are to be fully indulged. But he says the believer is called to control his body, to discipline his body. In fact, three chapters later, Paul uses a boxing term to describe what our discipline of our bodies ought to look like. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He says, but I discipline. This word literally means to punch in the face, <laughs> to make it black and blue. I box, I beat my body and keep it under control, lest, af lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The King James says, I buffet my body. Now, unfortunately, we've changed that because a lot of people read it, I buffet my body. No, you don't buffet your body, all right? Golden corral time. No, no, no. We beat down our body. We buffet it. Different meaning. Now, the $100,000 question is, okay, we're called to discipline. We're called to control our bodies. How do we do it? <laughs> How do we control this fleshly appetite? How do we discipline the urges and the impulses that are part of being a human being? I'm glad you asked this, this question. Because the Bible is replete, particularly the New Testament, of how we do this. Namely, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit. Being controlled and led by the Spirit. And now I know some of you are saying, how do you do that? <laughs> That's something of a nebulous, ambiguous concept. Okay, I'm supposed to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, you know, what, how does that happen? I'm going to give you in 60 seconds. You ready? Time me. I'm going to give you in 60 seconds how to be filled with the Spirit. Okay? I'm going to show you two parallel passages that communicate this clearly. First, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. Now notice the response to this being filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So the response to being filled, controlled, led by the Spirit is this rejoicing in melody. There's only one other passage in the entire Bible that describes this response of melodic rejoicing. I want to show it to you. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Here's the response. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Both of these passages, the response to the activity is Melodic rejoicing. So how are we filled with the Spirit? How are we led by the Spirit? How are we controlled by the Spirit so as to discipline our body? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Friends, you will not walk in the Spirit. You will not be led in the Spirit if your only engagement with the Scripture is 30 minutes on Sunday morning once a month. You will be controlled by your bodily appetites. By letting the Word of Christ Dwell in us richly. It means your Bible saturated. When you get stuck, you bleed Bible. You speak Bible. You pray Bible. Friends, listen. Being involved in the Scripture is not just about information. It's not even about inspiration. It's about supernatural impartation. 
The Spirit of God comes upon those who let the Word of God dwell in them richly and deeply. How do we discipline our bodies as those who have been called to be holy? We engage with the Scripture. So discipline your body. Here's the second means. Depend on God. Depend on God. Verse 5 says, Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Here's the thing that really was unsettling, particularly with this last political cycle. It seemed Christians were surprised that worldly people acted worldly. We seem to be shocked that lost people who do not know God act like lost people. They're lost. And this is the controlling element. They don't know God. Therefore, they do live out in the passion and the lust of their flesh. Two words Paul uses there. Passion, this is just this overwhelming control. Lust, this, this powerful uh, desire. But God demonstrates something to us here. We are not like that. Why? I think he's pointing to, to something here. You know God. Do you remember when you came to know God? Do you remember the moment? Do you remember realizing that your own guilt and shame and sin was committed not even against yourself or against your neighbor, your parents, your family. It was committed against the judge of the universe. And as the judge of the universe, you stood before him in his righteous, fair justice, completely condemned, worthy of his wrath. But God, being rich in love, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. You came to see the beauty and the glory of his one and only son who was tempted with every fleshly tendency you've been tempted with, yet never sinned. And this Jesus, through a bunch of jealous people, was hung on a cross willingly but not deservedly to take the punishment for your sin and buried as a dead man in a tomb and on the third day resurrected from the dead so that all who trust in him might have the same new resurrection life that only he provides. Do you remember that? <laughs> But not only did you come to know God, God came to know you. This is what Paul's pointing to here. This is the new birth. And friends, this is the powerful means and resource for walking in spiritual maturity. Again, to the church in Corinth in chapter 6, we look again. Paul says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, porne, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's where we come in the passage. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That new birth, that regeneration, that bringing brought from death to life, from the kingdom of, his, of darkness, transferred and transitioned to the kingdom of his beloved son. That new birth, coming to know God, is a powerful resource and memory for sexual purity. Here's the third re resource and means he gives us, and that is defer to others. Defer to others. 
Verse 6, he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, this is completely counter and contrary to the exaltation of self in our Western thought life. You see, the Western man thinks, I'm primary. The Western mind says, what I believe is what matters most. But we are to have the mind of Christ. What's the mind of Christ say in Philippians 2? He did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but took upon himself the form of a servant and the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He died for us. See, when we have the mind of Christ, we say, I'm not standing up for my rights, giving away my rights. I'm not demanding fairness in this world. I'm giving away fairness. In humility, we consider others as more important than ourselves. We defer to others. And Paul uses this term here that's translated transgress. In first century Greek culture, that was particularly a business term. It was used when one merchant defrauded another merchant, when he cheated him out of something, when he stole something from him. In fact, the King James actually translated as defraud, but most of us don't use that term defraud. It means to cheat, to steal. How do we defraud other people with this world of sexual immorality? One way that is proliferated throughout our culture is pornography. Pornography. It's, it's a shame that even some twisted so-called marriage therapists prescribe pornography to married couples to spice up the bedroom. It's sick. I'm old enough to remember a day that if somebody wanted pornography, they had to walk into a physical store. They had to go to the counter, and those covered up magazines behind the cashier, he had to say to the cashier, give me that dirty magazine. They would put it on the counter, he'd put forth his money in front of all the other customers and buy the pornography. That didn't happen anymore today. In our world of the internet, it's completely and totally anonymous private. So how do we defraud others through the use of pornography? If statistics are to be believed, one-fourth of the men and likely more in this room regularly participate with the usage of pornography. Here's how you defraud others. You're defrauding the people that are in those images, providing a market. You're defrauding your current spouse, your future spouse, and friends look around the room. You're cheating your brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to give just a word to the single folks in the room. This instruction of transgressing, of wronging, of cheating, of defrauding others, it obviously applies to the world of dating relationships. Most of you know for eight seasons I was the team chaplain for UTC's wrestling team. And on, uh, every, during the season, once a week, we had a chapel time where I would give a talk of 20, 25 minutes. And on one particular time, I, I gave a talk and I said, hey guys, I want you to imagine a scenario. I said, I want you to imagine that the sexual activity you're involved with your girlfriend this weekend, some other dude is likely doing the same thing to your future wife. Of course, across the room, there were these groans. <laughs> One guy, <laughs> I won't say who, he said, Troy, why did you put that thought in my head? I said, I think it's obvious why I put that thought in your head. You see, even though many of those wrestlers were not believers in Jesus, they inherently understood what defrauding means. 
something that should be reserved for me alone, my sexual relationship with my wife, is being taken by some other dude. This is defrauding. But even beyond that, beyond how we honor other people through our choices, I think, I think there's a deeper significance that Paul is communicating here. Because notice again, he says, that no one transgress and wrong who? His brother. His brother in the matter. If you've been with us, you've seen that Paul has used this familial term over and over and over again in the book of 1 Thessalonians. The point is this. We have a responsibility to each other. If you're a covenant member of this church, Lookout Valley Baptist Church, you have a responsibility, an accountability to the people in this room, in this fellowship. And when you sin, especially in this area, you're cheating your church family. You're defrauding your brothers. And I'm afraid this, this Western thought of the discovery of self and radical individualism has crept into the Western church. And we begin to think that, well, we are isolated. Only the individual matters. So it's become commonplace to come to a church service like this, sit in a pew, look at the back of somebody's head, sing some songs, listen to a sermon, leave out the back door, and never engage in any kind of life-on-life relationship with anybody ever. And I'm afraid COVID and the proliferation of live streaming has expanded this tragedy. This is a false idea. That what it means to be connected to a church is just checking off my attendance. No. When one of us weeps, we all weep. When one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. And I want to say it, say it plainly. It is not a New Testament idea that anticipates involvement in a local church would look like this, where we just are randomly connected. We don't sporadically bump into each other. We ought to be deeply committed to one another. Therefore, we walk in holiness together. So Paul says this is a great means for walking in sexual purity, the consideration of your spiritual family, deferring to others. Don't wrong your brother and sister in Christ. So we've seen the mandate for sexual purity, the means for sexual purity, but finally I want to notice the motivation for sexual purity. Uh, Paul anticipates the obvious question. Okay, wh- why, why should I do this? Why should I walk in sexual purity? Nobody else in the world or society is doing it. Why should we? Well, he gives three distinct and clear motivations for this being set apart, sanctified, holy living. The first one is this. He wants us to consider the very real possibility of the punishment of God. He says at the end of verse 6, because, here's the reason, here's the motivation, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. God is an avenger. Now, we know generally God punishes evildoers and wrongdoers. The Bible is clear. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one person sows, he's also going to reap. And I'm afraid sometimes in the back recesses of our evangelical American Christian minds, we secretly wish, yeah, God brings some judgment on these people. You want us to call fire down from heaven. (laughs) Judgment begins with the house of God. He is an avenger of all these things. You're sleeping with your girlfriend? He's the avenger, not me. You're engaged in pornography? God will punish you. This is clear. He is not to be trifled with. In this life, there is a myriad of ways God will bring punishment on his children. 
on those who are his. The Lord disciplines those he loves, brothers. It could be the loss of your marriage, the loss of a child, the loss of your life. And in the next world, in the next life, the loss of rewards where you are saved, yes, but so as through fire, you smell of smoke. This is a motivation for sanctification, for holiness. God is the avenger. He will punish. And Paul says, this is just a refresher for you guys. Remember when I was with you a few weeks ago, solemnly warned you, told you God's the avenger. This is a refresher course. Punishment of God, number two. Another motivation is the purpose of God. He says in verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. I want you to circle that word, called. We strive for sexual purity as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, because this is what he's called us to. This is the purpose for which he's called us out, to be distinct. This is exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy hagios nation, a people of God for his own possession. This is the purpose for which we've been called, to be distinct be different. And thirdly, even though we are to be the bride of Christ, dressed in pure white linen, no spot or wrinkle, as the purpose of God, thirdly, he points to the purchase of God. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We've already talked about how the leading and the infilling of the Holy Spirit enables us to be disciplined over our bodies. But I think here particularly, when he describes it as the gift of his Holy Spirit, he's pointing us back to the new birth. He's pointing us back to our conversion. Paul at Ephesians 1 talked about the Holy Spirit and the giving of the Holy Spirit as a pledge, a down payment with guaranteed future installments that we will inherit eternity in heaven. In fact, again, one more time to 1 Corinthians 6. Notice this parallel. Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, here's the response, glorify God in your body. Friends, the believer who understands this truth, this body ain't mine. This physical vessel, my soul inhabits, has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Any Christian could never repeat the baby-killing abortion mantra, my body, my choice. It ain't your body. It's his body. You ain't got a choice over it. It's his choice. He determines how we live. Therefore, glorify God in your now I want to close with some particular application for us as Christians in this bizarre cultural moment I described at the beginning of this sermon. What do we do now? <laughs> okay, this is the culture we live in. It's continually careening out of control. Our parents or grandparents could have never imagined what we're experiencing. What now? I've got three suggestions I've distilled from Carl Truman's book I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. Three suggestions for what we do now. First of all, we must affirm our commitment to our biblical standards. 
we must reaffirm to our hearts and our minds that the Bible is the standard for all of living. We cannot allow the narrative of the world, no matter how compelling their arguments, no matter how compassionate their motives, to run contrary to the clear teaching of the Bible. You see, it's no accident, it's no coincidence that the so-called churches today who are fully embracing deviant sexual lifestyles decades ago jettisoned their commitment to the Bible. They jettisoned their affirmation that the Bible is authoritative, that it is inspired, that it is infallible. And today, they're reaping the results of that decision. So we must affirm and reaffirm our only standard is not what the Supreme Court votes. It's the Bible. It's the truth of God's word. Here's the second thing. What now? We press into Christian community. The message of the primacy of the self, again, is being communicated regularly, daily, in all forms and functions, newscasts, social media. Even I saw it the other day on an Old Navy commercial. Buy jeans because we are sexually progressive. Are you kidding me? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, bad company corrupts good morals. The converse of that is also true. Good company enhances good morals. Why do you think the author of Hebrews at the end of chapter 10 said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but encourage one another. And all the more, all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Friends, is the day drawing near? Yes. Press in to deeper, more committed Christian community. Here's the third what now. Recover a high view of the physical body. And this is something of a correction of maybe what you might have interpreted from the rest of my sermon. You you might interpret that because I've talked about the perverse impulses and desires and passions of our bodies, of our flesh, we could lean into the ancient Gnostic idea that everything in the physical and the material is bad and evil and only spiritual is good and right. My body's been purchased by Jesus, right? I want you to hear what I'm going to say very clearly, these next three words. Sex is good. Can I get an amen? Amen. Sex is good within the realm for which God had designed it. The realm I gave you at the very beginning of the sermon. Within a monogamous, married relationship between one biological male and one biological female. In that realm, sex is good. It is a gift from God for human flourishing and enjoyment and procreation. As we close, I want to point you to one final verse. Colossians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, we commend the gospel to a watching world by the way we live our lives. You see, all the discovery of self, all the pursuit of all these different lifestyles and deviance from God's design I'll tell you what they are. Jeremiah described them. They're broken cisterns that hold no water. They're cracked pots, literally. And they'll fully engage in these cisterns that they think provide such satisfaction for the thirst of their souls, and they're going to come up dehydrated every time. And when they do, will we be here with the message of the gospel that provides satisfaction rest for weary souls, 
hydration for the thirsty. Not just the message, but lives that comport with that message. That's why we live distinct. That's why we live holy lives. And that leads to my last thought. Distinct lives make the message we proclaim believable.